Today's scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and begin, began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Good morning, church. Good to see you all here today. Thanks for coming out. Uh, a lot of you know that I grew up on a farm in Boone County, about an hour north of Indianapolis, and uh, the farm was a, a wonderful growing up experience. And one thing you always have on farm farms is that you have piles of things. Piles of you know what, and then there's piles of dirt, and then in the haymount there's piles of hay, and there's piles of straw, and Oh, piles of corn, and uh, one of the things that some of my friends and I used to play with some of these piles was called King of the Hill, all right? King of the Hill, and the object of the game was to stay on the top of the pile, whatever pile you were on, and when somebody else would try to come up and throw you off, you'd try to push them down, they'd try to pull you off, and so it would just go on, I don't know how long we'd played, I guess until somebody either got hurt or we finally got tired of that and decided to play another game, but that was one of the games that we played, King of the Hill. And, uh, you know, uh, this, this children's game really provides an excellent example of our fallen human nature because we all want to be king of the hill. We all want to be king or queen of our own world. And even the nation of Israel succumbed to this delusion as well. And I want to point this out and ask you to turn, if you will, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 8, ninth book in the Bible. So you have the five books of the law, then you have Joshua and Judges, Ruth, and then you come to 1 Samuel, and go to chapter 8, if you will. So 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel, but 1 Samuel, chapter 8. We're going to be focusing on kings today. Who is the king? So verse 1, 1 Samuel 8, 1. When Samuel became old, and Samuel was probably the last judge of Israel, also one of the great prophets of Israel. So when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, 
That, that has a nice ring to it, I think. Joel. Yeah. And the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. And they took bribes and perverted justice. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, which was Samuel's hometown. And he said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Quick review of last week's message. Remember Jesus in the Guard of Gethsemane. When he, was in, when he was distressed and deeply troubled over what was going to happen in the next few hours, he prayed. What did the disciples do? Well, they fell into a spiritual slumber and slept. Uh, they took matters into their own hands, and one of them drew a sword and cut off an ear. And then at the end, they all ran away. But Jesus prayed. And here Samuel also sets this example for us that when he's troubled about something or not knowing exactly what to do or how to handle a situation, he prays. That's just a good principle for us to remember. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, go over four more chapters to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12, and look at verse 12. 1 Samuel 12, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. God very clearly says, I'm your king. Why do you want an earthly king? But they thought a temporal earthly king might be better than an eternal heavenly king. And oftentimes we feel the same way. And sometimes we even volunteer to be the king. Mm -hmm. Well, here's some Old Testament passages on God's kingship. You heard uh, one of these from Grant this morning as he read his passage from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And then Jeremiah 10a. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting God king. And then Zechariah 9.9, in being prophesying the coming of Christ, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, we see this being fulfilled in the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem just a few days before the passage that we're going to look at here today. And then here are some New Testament passages that talk about Christ's kingship. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And then Luke chapter 19, verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That was shouted at his triumphal entry. And then in John 1:49, as Jesus just said something very miraculous to Nathanael, one of his disciples, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So pretty clear from Old Testament teaching as well as New Testament teaching that the Lord God, Christ Jesus, is to be the nation of Israel's king and our king. But many times we want to be the king or we want to elevate somebody else as our sovereign Lord. And so that brings us to today's text in Mark chapter 15. But first, let's pray. Father, indeed, you are the king of glory. And you're such a loving king that you would share your glory with us. And yet, Father, many times we choose to make other people other things, even ourself, king in your place. Just as the nation of Israel did, just as the religious leaders in Jesus' day did. So this morning, Father, I pray that you'll speak to us through your word, that we will see exactly what kind of a king you are, and that you're a king who deserves to be worshipped, a king who deserves to be bowed down to, a king who deserves to be loved in return for your love, who deserves to be served, and who deserves all of our heart. You deserve to sit on the throne of our heart and our life, Lord. I pray you'll make that very real to us this morning, and I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you'll speak to each individual heart in terms of the issues we have in fully making you King of kings and Lord of lords in our life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will, open up uh, your Bible or device to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospels, the good news. Now, I've entitled the message King Jesus for a couple of different reasons. One is that in this passage, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, we see four different times where Jesus is called the king of the Jews. So it focuses on his kingship. And then the other reason, too, is that the religious leaders during this day were actually looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior. They were looking for a king. And yet when Jesus shows up, he's not exactly the type of king they were looking for. And so they refused to accept him as king. Even at the, one of the passages we'll look at later, they would say, we have no king but Caesar. Just amazing, the irony and uh, just the uh, deception, uh, just how far off they were in terms of where they were pointing their loyalties to. And we'll, we'll see this in some of the texts today. So, Mark chapter 15, let me read the first five verses here. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, in other words, the Sanhedrin. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. 
And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. You might remember that Grant mentioned last week that that nighttime trials were illegal. So most of their discussions happened during the night, and so they had to convene early in the morning to have a chance to halfway make it look like it was a legal trial, and so they gathered one last time. And then they trotted Jesus off to Pilate. Uh, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria, and uh, because of the people that he served under out of Rome, he actually despised the Jews. Uh, In verse 2, where he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. You may wonder, well, is is he really saying yes, or is he saying, well, that's what you say, but maybe it's not so. But actually, he is very clearly saying, that's what you say. You said it. That's it. Yes, I am the king of the Jews. Uh, You might, if you look up in chapter 14 at verse uh, 61, the question is asked, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Jesus at this point in time does not shy away from revealing exactly who he is. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Uh, He's the King of the Jews. In uh, verse 3, it says that they accused him of many things. Well, what were those many things? Well, as I've mentioned before, anytime you're studying something in the Gospels, always compare it and contrast it to the things that are said in the other Gospels to kind of get the fuller story. gives you a little better chronology as well as more information so that you can actually get a, a greater feel of what's going on. So in uh, Luke 23, 2, it says the relig- religious leaders accused Jesus of three things. The first one was misleading the nation. Of course, they really were the ones who were misleading the nation. But lots of times when people are deceiving, they're lying, they're misleading, they accuse somebody else of of doing it. And the religious leaders were the ones who were, Jesus was trying to bring the nation back to serving God the king and showing them that he was the king. They also accused him of forbidding people to give tribute to Caesar. You see, the religious leaders figured out amongst themselves, well, We're accusing him of blasphemy because he's saying he's the Christ. He's saying, I'm the son of God. But they knew that the Roman authorities wouldn't really care about that. And so they've got to turn the accusations into something that they can actually get the Romans to buy into. So now they start talking about money. Money speaks. And so they said that he doesn't give tribute to Caesar. All right. The third thing they accuse him of is that he was the Messiah. He said he was the Messiah. He was the king of the Jews. And so they thought Pilate might perk up on that if they say, well, Jesus is, t- is saying to us he's a king. And, of course, Pilate would be loyal to Caesar, who was his king or emperor at that point in time. So money and power speak, and that's the charges that they brought uh, to Pilate. In other words, they accused him of treason. And that, that would fly in a Roman court of law. Uh, a quote by, here's a quote by Donald English in a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He says, The irony of the situation is overwhelming. Jesus, who is indeed king of the Jews in a deeply spiritual sense, has refused to lead a spiritual uprising. Yet now, condemned for blasphemy by the Jews because of his spiritual claims, He is accused by them also before Pilate 
for being, now listen closely, he is accused of being, of being precisely what he has disappointed the crowds by failing to be, a political insurgent. They wanted Jesus to be a political military ruler and king, but he wasn't. But now they accuse him of being that to be able to get their way with Pilate and to have Jesus put to death. Spin, 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 spin. I know you've never seen that lately anywhere, but it's, it happened back then, all right? Uh, so, he, yeah, Jesus refused either to plead guilty or to defend himself. So you think about that. You know, he just, he stayed silent. He didn't say anything. He didn't plead guilty to their charges, but he also didn't try to defend himself. And I'll tell you why. If Jesus had determined to defend himself, he would have won. Think of all the times the religious leaders and the political leaders, especially religious leaders, I guess, asked him questions or tried to test him. Jesus could always outthink anybody. I mean, he's God. He's brilliant. But he knew that was his cup to bear, going to the cross. And so he didn't plead guilty, but he also didn't try to defend himself either. He stayed silent. Uh, in John 18, as Pilate is questioning Jesus, Jesus does make it clear that he's a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. It's a, it's a spiritual kingdom. And it's inter interesting to note that in Mark 15, 26, if you're in your Bible, you might glance over at Mark 15, 26, the inscription on the plate above Jesus on the cross said the charge against Jesus read, the king of the Jews. God the Father made sure they got it right. He was the king of the Jews. That's what they were accusing him of, and that's who he was. He was the king of the Jews. He was the king of the world. He's the king of kings. He's our king. Jesus is the king. Uh, his silence that's mentioned in verse 5 is, a is uh, one of the messianic prophecies in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think of the things that Jesus is going through and will go through. The oppression and the affliction, and yet he remains silent. I mean, when I have a headache, I want the world to know. You know what I mean? And here's Jesus going through all of this, and he's just quiet. Pretty amazing. All right, let's look at this next set of verses, 6 through 15. Mark 15, starting in verse 6. Now at the feast, remember this is the feast of the Passover, feast of unleavened bread, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they had asked. This was Pilate's custom. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! 
And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent of the charges they brought against him. He was a sharp guy. He didn't get in his position by being ignorant. He could see through the religious leaders. He had been there a few years, so he knew the lay of the land. He knew that Jesus was innocent. Uh, Luke 23 says that he fa- didn't find Jesus guilty of any of their charges that he brought, they brought against him. But he was more committed to keeping the peace with the religious leaders in Judea and the political leaders in Rome than rendering justice to Jesus. In other words, he was looking out for number one. He didn't want to stir things up and and be on the bad side of the religious leaders and the people in general. He also didn't want Rome to hear of what's going on and for them to feel like he he can't keep a handle on things. He was kind of caught, all right? We also see Pilate sending Jesus to Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, when he learned that uh, he was in town, and also that when he found out that Jesus was a Galilean, and then Herod Antipas was uh, ruled over Galilee, and so he sent him to Herod, thinking that, you know, I really don't want to mess with this, so I'm just going to send him to Herod. At that point in time, the two of them were enemies. But after they both encountered Jesus and sort of worked together uh, to put an end to him, so, so they thought, uh, they became best friends. It's amazing how things work out. Uh, in Matthew 27, we're told that Pilate's wife had also had a dream, and uh, she said, told Pilate, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. And so Pilate was disturbed by that as well. Pilate was definitely looking for a way out. He did not want to have to render a guilty verdict here because he knew Jesus was innocent. And yet, here's the religious leaders, you know, coming up against him. And here's the crowd shouting, crucify him. And here's Rome looking to see whether he can maintain order in Jerusalem and Judea. Pilate also underestimated the religious leaders' influence on the crowd when they asked for the release of Barabbas and for Jesus to be crucified. He didn't realize the religious leaders would have that type of influence on the crowd. And this may have been from the fact that during the triumphal entry, the crowd was so excited to have Jesus come at that point in time. He thought, well, surely the crowd doesn't feel like the religious leaders. Uh, this, and it, it, so it was based on probably what he thought their response would be based on that triumphal entry a few days earlier. Luke 23 tells us that the crowd's voices prevailed over Pilate's insistence that Jesus was innocent. Now think about that. The crowd's voices prevailed over the governor who was supposed to make a just verdict here. Crowds can be fickle, and they can be loud at times, but their voices prevailed. Also in John 19, uh, the religious leaders cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Okay, now they're, now they're going in here. All right, now they know. Okay, this, this will get Pilate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. 
Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. In other words, their hatred for Jesus exceeded their hatred for Rome. So finally, according to Matthew 27, when Pilate saw that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the crowd said, His blood be on us and on our children. So it's, it's also interesting to note that Pilate cared more about his job and his reputation, uh, his reputation in Rome than administering justice to Jesus. I mean, he, he was such a man that was weak in character that he, it was all about him. So what can I do to save my skin, save my job, save my reputation in Rome? Even though this man is innocent, we all know he's innocent. I can't declare him innocent. And even though he wasn't willing to see justice administered to Jesus, think about this. Jesus went to the cross so that God's justice might be satisfied. You have just the opposite here. A man who won't do the right thing and Christ who definitely does the right thing and and dies in our place that we might be justified. And so that he could be the justifier of all those who believed. Think of it this way. Jesus took Barabbas' place. Barabbas was the one who deserved to die. But Jesus took Barabbas' place. And this is even more personal. Jesus took our place. We were the ones who deserved to die. For the wages of sin is death. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God in his grace and his love would provide his son to go through the scourging, the crown of thorns, the crucifixion, and and all of that uh, so that you and I could be justified, made right with God, and uh, have eternal life and a home in heaven. Jesus took our place. Before Jesus was crucified, they had him scourged. Scourging was a form of a punishment where, they, where the convicted person was beaten with a short whip and it had little strips on it called cattails and the cattails had metal and bone on the end of them. And so you probably had a guy on each side that was taking this and whipping a person's back. And so that metal and bone would actually pull off flesh. And if the person got beat severely enough and long enough, lots of times the person actually died from the scourging. It was quite torturous. Um, We see this being prophesied in Isaiah 52, right before the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. It says, Many were astonished at you. His appearance, speaking of Jesus, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, I know lots of times, you know, we don't like to think about that. And, uh, you know, not everybody agrees exactly the type of torture that Jesus went through and just how severe that might have been. But, but anytime you're beaten in that way and to where you can't even carry you know, your cross and have to have somebody take it for you, um, we know it was bad. And we know it must have, there must have been a lot of blood involved. All right, let's look at these last few verses here. 
as we wrap up this passage. Look at verse 16, Mark 15, verse 16. It says, The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. A battalion was about a tenth of a legion, which is about 600 men. And they clothed them in purple cloaks, sometimes it says scarlet, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So think of the love that Jesus must have had for the world he created that he would allow himself to be so mistreated and abused at the hands of those he created and for those that he was dying for. Think of that type of love that he would have had. And, you know, speaking of this, uh, the crown of thorns, and I'm, I'm careful how I handle this because I keep this at my house. I think Justin Williams gave me this, but it's actually, you know, it's got thorns on it. Every time I pick it up, I normally prick myself. And it's just a good reminder to me of the blood that Jesus shed, not only on the cross, but during his scourging as well as putting this crown. But think of it this way. Jesus had the crown of thorn. He wore the crown of thorns so that you and I can wear the crown of glory, the crown of life. He wore the crown of thorns that we might wear the crown of life by putting our faith in him. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were running from God, doing our own thing, being our own king, our own queen, turning our backs on him, doing whatever we felt like doing, Christ died for us. That is a, how's it go, Joshua? Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love, something like that, yeah. So this morning, uh, as I close, let me roll out a couple of questions and uh, share just a couple last thoughts. Here's a question for all of us. Is Jesus the king seated on the throne of your heart? Or are you still sitting there? Or do you sometimes put Jesus on the throne and then sometimes you take him down and put yourself back up on the throne? Like when I need protection and provision and love and peace, oh yeah, I need Jesus on the throne. But when I kind of want to do my own thing, play around with my petty sins or whatever, then I kind of put myself back up there and ask Jesus if he wouldn't mind just you know getting down for a little bit. Do you worship and serve your king on a daily basis? Instead of, well, one day I serve Jesus, the next day, okay, that's my day, and then, you know, okay, like that. Do you look to him? Do you listen to him? Do you obey him? Are you a faithful servant of the king? Or are you still wanting others to serve you? Remember Jesus said how, the Gentiles, the, 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 the great men among the Gentiles lorded over them, and they have people serve them. But Jesus said, don't let it be so among you. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that he is our example. And he's also our empowerment, not just our example, but Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's our empowerment 
to serve and to wash feet the way Jesus served and washed feet and the way he died to himself. So in Jesus' first coming, he came as the Lamb of God to die for the sins of the world, meek and mild. At his second coming, he will come as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come as the King of kings and Lord of lords to strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. At that time, everyone will acknowledge him as the true and eternal king, but for many, it will be too late. Today is the day to make Jesus your king. If you've never invited him into your life to put him on the throne, asking him to be your Lord and your leader and king, today is the day to do that. You can do that right in your seat right now in the quietness of your heart. You can say, Jesus, be my king. I don't want to be king anymore. I don't want to be queen. I want you to be king. Here's what S.M. Lockridge had to say about Jesus, the king. I, uh, I love these words. Um, they've been played a lot of times, but when you're talking about Jesus as king, it just doesn't get any better than this. Uh, S.M. Lockridge was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, and he gave a message entitled, That's My King, Do You Know Him? The Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? David said the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immorally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's awesome. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. Well, my king, my king is the king. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. 
He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand them, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. (laughs) Death couldn't handle him in the grave. Couldn't hold him. Yes, that's my king. That's my king. That's my king. Let's pray.